Well, sometimes I go out by myself and I look across the water. And I think of all the things, what you're doing. And in my head, I paint a picture. Since I come home, well, my body's been a mess. And I miss your gender hair and the way you like the daggers. Won't you come on over? Stop making a fool out of me. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the song that just played and the singer behind it. Amy Winehouse, known for her singular voice and iconic beehive, emerged in the early 2000s as a soulful talent. She stood out in a music landscape of shimmering pop stars and girl groups. She was a quick-witted Londoner, and her raw voice and honest storytelling felt refreshing. I'm Maria, and I'm a journalism student at the University of Southern California. I'm a self-proclaimed music nerd, and I love delving into the lives of musicians. I remember my mom introducing me to Amy's music and listening to Back to Black and Frank on CD in the back of her minivan. My mom doesn't frequently introduce new artists into rotation. She pretty much just listens to Bruce Springsteen, Eric Clapton, Juanes, Carlos Vivas on repeat, and that's about it. So I knew Amy was special. Like many artists who rise to fame suddenly, Amy struggled in the public eye, but her struggles with addiction and bulimia were covered relentlessly by the press. In this podcast installment, I'm going to delve into Amy's life and career and how the media covered her. But this isn't completely uncharted territory. There's a great documentary called Amy that won an Academy Award that covered her life. There's also a slew of articles that delve into the media into media analysis about Amy, but I'll try and summarize it all for you. Amy Winehouse was born on September 14, 1983, in the Southgate area of London. And even as a kid, she was a rebel. In the Amy documentary, her mom, Janice, talks about how even as a kid, she was determined and she was stubborn. And that only got worse when her parents split up when she was a teenager. And she started doing, you know, a lot of the things that teenagers do when they're trying to go against their parents. She started getting tattoos. She started drinking a lot. She started cutting school, smoking weed. Um, She never really saw herself going to college. She really only saw herself as a musician. And as a teenager, she really started pouring her soul into writing music and singing around London. And she was just a really unique talent and super into jazz music. She grew up listening to Frank Sinatra um, and just really loved writing about her issues in this really confessional and vulnerable way. And when she was only 19 years old, her best friend um, sent a demo tape into Island Records and she got signed pretty quickly. They were, you know really quickly able to identify how much of a talent she was, even at just 19. And as a 19-year-old, she started writing Frank, which was her first album that came out in 2003. And it was an instant hit. It rose to number three on the British Billboard chart. And it won her lots of awards. It won her financial freedom. 
And even in that album, although it's mostly about breakups, which she writes about in a really bold way for what is considered a jazz album. Usually I feel like a lot of jazz musicians tend to kind of beat around the bush a little bit. She's very raw in her lyricism. She's very to the point about her experiences with men in a way a lot of other female jazz singers haven't been. And even in that first album, um, she kind of talks a little bit about substance abuse with the song Mr. Magic, which was a bonus track added on to the end of the album, where she sings about how much she enjoys smoking weed and how much she enjoys drinking. Every day I see you. And, you know, at this time when Frank came out, it was really before, you know, there was any media attention on her and her substance abuse, which even in the documentary, which I watched when it came out a few years ago, um, you can see how it really started as a her as a kid with kind of a dysfunctional childhood, although it certainly ramped up after she became basically an overnight star with Frank. And with all of that success and all of that media attention, her struggles with drinking and drugs really just worsened. And yeah, it was just really hard for her to deal with all of that success. And that's something that's, you know, not unique just to Amy. I mean, there has been lots of sort of overnight excesses in the music, successes in the music industry. And I imagine it's really difficult to deal with that. Um, whether or not you kind of came from maybe a rockier childhood like Amy did, or even if not, it's hard to deal with so many people praising you at once. And right now I'm reading this book called Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is about all of these indie musicians um, in New York City in the early 2000s. And they talk a lot about, you know, when you're this new artist and you know everyone's really excited about you, you're constantly getting schmoozed by all these executives. They're always taking you to bars. Um, they're always trying to you know make you excited about working with them, and you know it's really it's hard to get out of that you know that cycle. And also after shows, you know, a lot of time musicians like to go out and party, and obviously there are all these new fans who are kind of like worshiping you, and that's really strange. And I'm sure that's a really difficult situation and so you know Amy's going into this already struggling a little bit with substance abuse as a teenager so that's already just right off the bat really difficult for her and you know after Frank came out um she you know found a lot of financial success she moved to London's Camden neighborhood which if you know anything about Camden it's a mecca for punk musicians and Honestly, people who really like to party, you know, the Ramones 
lived there. Oasis lived there. Blondie lived there. You know, these really huge musicians who are incredibly talented, but also, you know, really struggled with drugs and alcohol. And she really did um, embrace that scene with open arms and became a regular at the pubs in that area. Um, And that's also where she met Blake Fielder Civil, which has really been kind of an integral part of her story. Um, It was the boyfriend that inspired the album Back to Black. And he's really an interesting figure to me because um, I would say kind of the, you know, the court of public opinion really dislikes him. Um, A lot of people, you know, in the documentary too, and he has admitted to this, he did introduce Amy to hard drugs. He introduced her to cocaine. He introduced her to heroin, um, which she was not doing before Frank came out. Um, She was not doing that as a teenager. She was introduced it by, by Blake. And I don't know, it's hard for me because on the one hand, um, you know, it's awful. He introduced these hard drugs to her, which really was another reason for her death. But at the same time, you know, he had his own issues. He came from a broken home as well, which is why he got involved in drugs. And I think it's hard. I don't know. I think it's it's hard to judge addicts for what they're doing when they're using. So when Blake and Amy first met, um, Blake was in another relationship, but he pretty much fell head over heels in love with her instantly, as I'm sure any of us would with how talented Amy is. But um, the press really focused in on their lifestyle together. They were always like plastering photos of them hungover, you know, looking kind of disheveled on the streets of Camden. And they were just really easy targets for the paparazzi. Um, And they also did... You know what a lot of like young people in love do? They really rush into things. Like a couple months in, Amy got Blake tattooed on her te- her chest, and Blake got Amy tattooed on her his neck. And even though this sounds kind of intense, and it's like, oh, did maybe Blake only date Amy for her fame? Even like Amy Winehouse's mom like admitted that. It was like an impulsive relationship, but it was very pure. Like it was very clear that Blake was head over heels in love with Amy. But, you know, they were both young. And I think it was like six or nine months I read after they got together, Blake ended up going back to his ex-girlfriend after a fight. And that was really, really hard on Amy. And in conjunction with that, her grandmother died, who was basically her guardian and someone she was really close to growing up and kind of those two things together really made her turn back to some of her worst self-destructive behaviors I mean she was already partying a lot when she was with Blake but she started doing it even more so to the point where it was really dangerous and she also fell back into um, bulimia which she suffered from as a teenager And, you know, the press definitely started picking up on the fact that, you know, Amy was losing a lot of weight and the fact that she looked really unhealthy and that she did look like someone who was suffering from addiction, but they didn't really ever give her the grace or understanding of how hard that is. They kind of just made her a joke. And, um, you know, Amy's agent at the time, who was only a couple years older than her, you know, tried to confront her about 
you know, all of her drinking, all of her partying, all the drugs she was using and try to convince her to go to rehab. Um, but she pretty much was like, nope, I'm not doing that. And then that's kind of where the song Rehab came from. Um, and a lot of her album, Back to Black, which is her most famous album, it won her a ton of Grammys. Um, it completely exploded when it was released. Um, was about her relationship with Blake and how it fell apart. Um, and also it was a lot about how much she was partying. Um, and she certainly wasn't the first person to be harassed by the paparazzi about all the partying and drinking she was doing, but she was definitely one of the first and probably the most visual or visible artist, um, to have been attacked as much on social media. I mean, Back to Black came out in 2005, you know, same time as Facebook and Twitter and the iPhones and all these innovations that really changed how we were consuming our news and how we were interacting with one another. You know, before you were just maybe seeing artists being covered in tabloids at the grocery store and that was it. But now it's like everyone's pictures are going to be on Twitter and you can repost it and you can make fun of people. And that's really overwhelming for anyone, but especially for someone who's suffering from addiction really publicly. And, you know, the media really knew how lucrative Amy was and how much people wanted to know about her and her story. So photographers were, they were camped out of her doorstep all day. They were always just like waiting to capture her at her most desperate like when she was looking the absolute worst because, you know, the media knows and the paparazzi knows that people love to look at it. You know, they love to look at a car wreck. We love to watch someone struggling and, you know, that's awful, but they understand that kind of morbid curiosity of humans and they know that we're going to click and we're going to share and we're going to talk about when people are struggling because, we're interested in it and you know it's the paparazzi doing that but a lot of you know late night hosts and even other musicians were making fun of her um you know Graham Norton when I researched this I was really upset reading this because I I'm actually a huge Graham Norton fan but I know a lot of traditional media people are definitely at fault in this scenario um, and I, I, I would hope now that he's like reflected on what he said at that time, because I know a lot of people have, um, but Graham Norton called Amy Winehouse a mad person and crazy on his show. Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, um, basically predicted and said during an interview that Winehouse wouldn't be along for very long, which is particularly upsetting to me because Keith Richards is no stranger to partying. You know, that man, very into going out, very into doing drugs. And I think there was definitely a double standard with Amy Winehouse where, you know, there's a lot of been a lot of men in music who are very heavily involved in drugs. And a lot of the times the way the media kind of depicts them as, oh, the struggling artist who's trying to overcome their demons. And when they're writing about that, it's like, it's just genius. And they're just, they're pouring out their suffering in this very, you know, intelligent way. And um, with a lot of women who struggle with addiction, it's not 
they don't get the same grace. You know, Amy Winehouse, like Graham Norton called her mad. People were always calling her crazy. The comedian Frankie Boyle said that she looked like a campaign poster for neglected horses. Um, and that's how I'm going to end this installment. I'm going to do another one on Amy Winehouse. And yeah, she's definitely someone who kind of hit at the first storm of social media and had to deal with a lot of things that no other stars had to before that. And yeah, I think we all can think a lot about how we might contribute to celebrities that are hurting or are struggling. And while I was researching, I read this really interesting um, in an article from NME, which basically talked about why we were all to blame for the death of Amy Winehouse. That's the title of the article. And it just talks a lot about how, yes, the paparazzi and the tabloid press were a huge reason why Amy Winehouse struggled with drugs and struggled in the public eye. But also, you know, it's also just everyday people who are on Twitter making fun of her, you know, when she was at her worst and, you know, retweeting these paparazzi photos and like feeding into this system that only encourages, you know, taking down people. And, you know, it's hard because I feel like it is sometimes kind of fighting against our our basic our baser instinct but at the same time you never know what people are going through so yeah I'll, I'll talk more about Amy and uh, more specific examples about how the press covered her and how we can do better in my next installment